Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Thank you, Kristen, for sharing. Your reflections fit the season well. As we come through Palm Sunday and enter into Good Friday and then to Easter, we reflect on the cost of God's forgiveness, the fact that God redeems us from all our sins. The forgiveness is given graciously beyond our understanding, that God is at work redeeming our memories, bringing healing, empowering us to be able to forgive others. These are not just words or ideas that are there to simply make us feel better. This is something that is meant to enter into our lives in real ways. It affects how we live as families, how we're able to bring forgiveness and seek healing where hurt has been present. As we transition to our message, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the way that you invite us into your big story, for how being part of your people changes us and how we live for the grace that you show us and how through your grace, we may seek healing in our own lives. As we turn to your word now, illuminate our hearts, speak to us through your spirit that we may hear what you have to say. Amen. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 118, as well as Luke 20. Uh, Today is Palm Sunday, and we're continuing in our series, Stories Along the Way, although the the direction is changed a little bit. Um, Up until this point, the stories along the way were stories that Jesus was telling on his way to Jerusalem. Now Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and now the story is told on the way more directly to the cross. Today, we're also going to be reading a portion of Psalm 118, uh, because it pops up amongst the songs that people sing as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, They sing a line from it. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And, And it appears that This wasn't lost on Jesus. Jesus knew that they were singing Psalm 118 and all the expectations that came alongside it, and he brings it up again in the passage that we're going to read in Luke chapter 20. So I'm going to read first from Psalm 118, and I have the passages listed in bold where uh, Luke quotes the psalm. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. 
Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent the servants to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him, threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but everyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think I may have mentioned this before, uh, but about eight years ago, I had a unique experience for myself on Palm Sunday where I was in Jerusalem, and I got to walk the steps of Jesus. We, were, we met as this big group of people. We all had our palm branches, or some of them had guitars, and we waved the palm branches and we sang as we went from the Mount of Olives down to the East Gate and entered the same gate or the same area where Jesus would have walked. Now, this was accompanied, of course, with the palm branches and the singing, because both of these would have been elements on that first Palm Sunday. And we know from the Gospel of Luke some of the words that they were singing. We see, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This, this line, this little piece of Psalm 118, and, and we can be assured that when they sang this, they, they sang more than just that one line. Luke is giving an insight towards the type of song that they were singing. This was a song about the salvation of Israel that was going to be coming through this person. They even changed the word just a little bit. They changed it from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to blessed is the one or blessed is the king. They, they had this expectation that this person coming in was going to be the one that gives them a sure victory. And they assumed this, that, that Jesus entering into Jerusalem 
meant salvation specifically for them. The, cor- the, or the stone that has been rejected has been, become the cornerstone. This, this is a phrase that they would have sung time and time again. This was part of their songbook, Psalm 118. And they would have seen Israel as the stone that has been rejected by the nations. That this, this stone that's been rejected by everyone else, that somehow God will use them to become the place of blessing for all the nations. It'll become the cornerstone, the place through which the whole world will experience blessing. And in their minds, there was no question about it, Jesus was going to bring salvation for them, the people of Israel. Open the gates of the righteous, they sang. The one who brings God's salvation for us is finally here. I want you to hold on to that image for, uh, from Psalm 118 and from Jesus' entry because it's going to come back a little bit later. After Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he goes right to the temple. Uh, and Jesus is at the temple, and, and people are hanging on every word that he has to say. Uh, they've heard a lot of things, perhaps, about Jesus, uh, but now he was there. He was at the central point of the, the Jewish religion, and, and they wanted to hear not just about him, but directly from him. And they're hanging on every word, but not everybody really likes what he has to say. We, we know we have a group of religious elite who actually don't really like what Jesus is doing very much. They too have heard the, the rumblings about victory. They would have heard Psalm 118 being sung as Jesus entered, and they knew what that meant. That this was likely going to be another military uprising. And they looked at Jesus and they saw the people surrounding him and they thought, well, these people have not been training for war. He's not coming with an army. These people aren't fit to fight against Rome. This will simply just be another uprising that will not only be dangerous for Jesus, but this will be dangerous for them. The, the, Rome at that time, uh, when they saw an uprising from the Jewish people, they didn't make a distinction between uh, Jesus' followers and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes, all of these groups were just the Jewish people revolting against them, and Rome would come and bring their power over all of them. They knew that this would be judgment against them, so they wanted to stop Jesus before he got too far. Directly before this passage, there's a confrontation with these people. And Jesus responds to the confrontation between the religious leaders and himself with a story. Uh, The story is about a vineyard and a a landowner who rents it out to some farmers. And this would have been a very common situation at the time. Again, Rome is in control, so part of their taxes go to Rome. They're supposed to tithe a little bit. It's it's hard to uh, just make enough money to survive, so sometimes they would have to sell their land Uh, But to stay in surviving, you would have to at least take care of that land while the landowner is away and doing something else. So the scenario makes sense to them. And the analogy that Jesus is making is actually also pretty simple for them to follow. They would have been familiar with the images from Isaiah of God being the master of the vineyard. Uh, They would also be very familiar with the idea that Israel is the vineyard. 
uh, to look at the rest of the parable, though, it could get a little confusing because there are so many characters. So I just want to spell out who the varied characters are here. Uh, First, we have the landowner, who is God, the vineyard, who is Israel, the caretakers and the farmers. These are the religious leaders. They're, They're the ones that are taking care of the vineyard. Then we have the servants, the servants that the landowner sends. These are the prophets that the religious leaders or the caretakers reject. Then we have the landowner's son, which is, of course, Jesus, the Son of God. I'll leave that up just for another second for those that want to write it down. The story goes that the owner sends someone to pick up um, some grapes, this is a vineyard, uh, pick up some of the fruit from the vineyard, but the caretakers don't want to give up anything. Uh, they've forgotten this original agreement, or at least they, they don't agree with it anymore, and they see themselves as the central players. They, they figure they're, they're much better off without this landowner. They've become selfish over time, and, and they've made themselves the center of their story. And that part would be very clear for everyone listening. Uh, God sends his prophets, but the religious leaders are rejecting them. Uh, They figure that they're better off without God. They are too focused on their own stories to see what God is doing. That's what Jesus is communicating in the first few lines here. And if you're a religious leader listening to this story, your heart rate might be picking up just a little bit. Jesus hasn't named you directly, but you know that everyone in the crowd knows that Jesus is addressing you. You know that there are also plans to kill Jesus, and you might be thinking that they should probably get on this pretty quick before they turn everyone against you, before he riles up everyone even more. These are already pretty powerful words. But the story is not done. Uh, Jesus continues in the story. The the master sends his own son. It's not just the prophets that are rejected. But when the master sends the son whom he loves, the caretakers kill the son. it, It seems here that Jesus is very aware of the plans to kill him. He's under no illusions coming into Jerusalem. Now, What I find interesting in here is what Jesus has to say about the the motivations of why they are killing the son. He looks at them as selfish. Uh, Look at how he writes it here in the passage. Uh, He doesn't call, when he he goes to the voice of the, um, the tenants, he says, this is their heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Uh, They put it into economic terms here. It's all about having what they think should belong to them, but they think, but really belongs to God. They don't want to sacrifice anything they have because they want it all for themselves. Uh, Before we brush 
past that point, I think that's something that's worth dwelling on for a moment. I think we should take that part seriously because this is something that we all identify with. What Jesus accuses the religious elite of is not unique to them. This is something we all need to guard ourselves against. Jesus' charge is that these people don't always respond in full obedience when God asks something of them, when God asks perhaps that they sacrifice something. And who of us can say that we have a 100% track record in being able to respond positively whenever God asks something from us? The truth is, uh, we have the tendencies of the same, the same selfishness that shows up in the caretakers right here. The same thing that the, the farmers are showing. We want to be the center of our stories. We don't like taking the posture of your will be done, especially when it comes to sacrificing something that's substantial to us. We have the tendency to see ourselves as the most important players of the story. Rather than being incorporated into God's big story of salvation, we insist that God's salvation is something that must make our lives easier or, or better. And when we sense that God is calling us into something that is challenging, something that might require extra work or sacrifice, be that temptation to respond like the caretakers of that land, to respond like the farmers. Let's ignore what the person is saying. Kick them out so that we can continue doing what we're doing. The religious elite were unwilling to give up what they have grown to consider theirs. Now, if you take time to inspect in your own life, is there anything that you are unwilling to give up? Like, take just a moment to consider. Has God ever asked anything of you? Something that perhaps you would be unwilling to give up? Or something that you have silenced or, or dismissed because it was challenging? Have you ever taken the time to listen to God to hear what he might be asking of you? Or do you not do something like that because you're afraid that this could actually be something hard that God asks? To be clear in our passage here, Jesus is accusing the religious elite of taking God out of the equation. He is saying that in killing him, in killing the son, they are rejecting God once and for all. And, and everybody knew it. So again, if you're a religious leader listening to Jesus tell this parable, if you're, maybe your, your ears were getting a little hot at the first part of the story, but now uh, your whole face has gone red, you know this storyteller needs to go and he needs to go now. Uh, but Jesus keeps on telling the story. He's not quite finished yet. He has more to say. So moving on. 
The next question that he asks is, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And uh, this doesn't end well uh, for those tenants, the people that were taking care of the land. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. If that sounds a little harsh to you, if that, if that sounds like a, a pretty tough judgment against them, like, I think if Jesus asked this question to us, being like, okay, there's uh, people that were rejected time and time again, uh, what, what should the judgment be against them? Not everyone in the crowd is going to yell like, okay, we've got to kill them and, and give it to new. Like that, that's not really how things work in our culture, but... In the setting of the day, this is a document from over 2,000 years ago, the response from the crowd would have been very much the same. This is what they expected from their justice systems. And we get a window into this if we look at Matthew 21, verse 41, where the same story is told, but when he asked, what will he do to those tenants? It responds with the crowd responding, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. Um, Everybody listening is in agreement with what should happen in this type of scenario. Uh, This means judgment on the people who had mistreated the various servants. It meant judgment against the people that had killed his son. What would have actually been more confusing is why this judgment had taken so long. This should have been after the the first one or the second one. Like, if you're reading through it and you're saying, okay, after the second one, we're noticing a pattern, you're kind of thinking, don't send the third person. Like, this is one of those, like, horror movie sort of moments. Like, don't go outside. Like, something bad's going to happen. And yet, this, this landowner keeps on, like, graciously hoping that these people will turn, hoping that these people will act in proper accordance. Jesus is saying something about who God is here, that that God is abounding far beyond the graciousness that they would expect from others. Something that we know from the Old Testament where God announces himself as the one that is slow to anger and rich in love. Again, uh, let's remember what season we're in here. Uh, We're in the the season of Lent and entering into Palm Sunday. Uh, Good Friday is coming up quite soon. And we're going to be reading the next part of the story where Jesus endures the cross, where the Son truly dies, and his death and resurrection allow us to sing with joy on Palm Sunday, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Because we know that the king that died is not only gracious and slow in that judgment, but he is the one that also offers forgiveness for those who turn to him and repent. As we know that this king who died did so not just for the righteous, uh, but for all who call on him. That this led to a salvation that was far deeper than any of them had previously imagined. Perhaps one of the statements that we miss, uh, because we we could get a little sidetracked by judgment um, in this, 
is what happens um, afterwards here. In case you missed it, the vineyard is going to be under new management. Let's look at this passage again. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Giving the vineyard to others, I think, would have been probably the most shocking element here. This is what prompts the people to say, oh, let's have the response here. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. God forbid that the vineyard goes under new management. Other translations say, may this never be. This is not the story that they want to hear. They want to hear that God is going to do a new work under their current system and bring their blessings. But Jesus here is saying that God is doing something new. Then Jesus quotes Psalm 118. He says, remember that song that you sang when I came in and you thought it meant victory for you? That, you, that everything would be really easy going on, that I would glide in and you'd finally get the victory that you wanted? Well, I have some news for you. What do you think it means when I say that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That now needs to be read in light of me. Think of it this way. Jesus just told a story about the son being rejected, and now he is equating himself with the cornerstone that is rejected. He's talking about himself here. Jesus is the new Israel through which God's blessings will be mediated. This is an uprooting of everything that they know. Jesus is talking about starting a whole different type of community here, one that is not centered around military victory, it's not centered around the temple, but it's centered on Jesus himself. Now, in case you can't feel the tension that would be between uh, the, the religious leaders and Jesus, I love this next line here, um, the line that says, Jesus looked directly at them and asked this. Jesus is making a confrontation here. This, is, this reminds me of like a, a 1980s Western film where, where it's just before a standoff and you just have like a minute-long stare between people. Jesus is looking right at them saying like something is going down here. Something big is going to be revealed Jesus looks straight at them and says, what do you think it means that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the stone cornerstone? What God is doing here is he's making a new community, a new Israel, something that would become known as the church. This is something that Paul, um, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, doesn't miss. Uh, he picks up on this, and we find this in Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 19 through 21, where he says that we are this new temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
So even at this point here, Jesus is announcing that all of this is coming true through him. Now the cornerstone, so look at this image, has, has two big functions. One is to be the, the foundation. So it's going to be one of the, the first things that is set in place. But the other role, and perhaps more significant role of the cornerstone, is that it is the stone by which you measure all the other stones. It, it sets the guide for how the other stones are to be placed. Every stone placed afterwards is measured in relation to the cornerstone. And, and Jesus is saying, basically in this, do not look to the religious leaders. They have been given chance after chance, and they are being replaced. Don't look behind me at the temple. This temple that was uh, that tried to get rebuilt but never really got finished. It's beyond repair. Victory and salvation will come through me as the cornerstone. I am now the one that you measure your life towards. And this is how we understand what it is to be a Christian. This is one of the central ways that we should be looking at the Christian life. And I think sometimes we miss that aspect. Uh, perhaps we think of being a, a Christian only in terms of inviting Jesus into our lives. And in the process, we think that, that Jesus then is just a, a sliver in our lives, that, that he has to conform to the rest of our wants and our needs. In this case, uh, we might become really surprised when we find that Jesus asks anything of us. We might end up responding like the farmers in the story who do anything just to maintain their, their sense of independence. I think that rather than being conformed to the cornerstone, there's a temptation in our lives to be like the tenants, to be like the farmers. We want to make it about us rather than conforming to God's will. But the Christian call is this, this deep call where we adjust to who we are in Christ. So as we close, I want to encourage you throughout the week to be attentive listeners to what the Spirit may be speaking to you. Maybe it's something that you need to change in your life. Something that you need to give up. Maybe God is calling you to do something, to do something on behalf of the church, to do something for your community, for your neighborhood. When you sense the Spirit speaking to you, I invite you to listen into how you are being invited into God's story. Allow yourself to be decentered. As we move along to Good Friday, as we focus towards the cross, allow the cross itself to decenter you. Allow yourself to become a place where you are not vying for ownership or complete control over your life, but instead, may you find that you have given yourself to Jesus, who in his work on the cross grants us grace and freedom in following him. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, as we reflect on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the journey to the cross, we pray that you work in us through your Holy Spirit. May we know your forgiveness and grace in deeper ways. We thank you that you are not a God who abandons us. He doesn't abandon the vineyard completely, but he gives it to others. That you did a new work in Jesus, who is the cornerstone, and the church continues forward in being your people. As we go into our day-to-day living, may we bear fruit as we conform ourselves to the cornerstone through the work of the Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.